This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Fantanar. Michael, thank you very much for coming on to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. I was very pleased that you decided to come to the podcast because your story is actually very unique from uh, my perspective in that I recently had the opportunity of actually interviewing a Swedish about uh, dyslexia and how he used dyslexia to his advantage in being able to think differently and analyze information and look at problems in a different perspective. And your story is actually even more interesting because you have autism. So part of the reason is one, I'd like to find out a bit more about uh, autism. I do understand that there's a spectrum involved, but I'd like to find out a bit more about you, about your uh, story and then we'll start looking into how you've used that to your advantage. Sure. So, yeah, let's start off my story. Just go back to when I was a child. So, obviously, being autistic, I was non-verbal, as in not speaking, until the age of three. Obviously, my parents realised from a young age that I wasn't developing in a typical fashion. So, age mm-hmm. two, I was given the diagnosis of PDD-NOS. You don't need to memorize this. It stands for Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise specified. Now, despite the name, it's actually quite a vague diagnosis, which simply means that I'm not developing in a typical fashion and I may need support. Mm-hmm. So this led on to age seven being given the diagnosis of high-functioning autism. They did say treat as Asperger's syndrome. The difference between Asperger's syndrome and high-functioning autism is that there's no delayed language development. So I was late talking. That's why it was an Asperger's syndrome. So this meant that obviously I required support at school. I started off my education in a special unit, progressing to mainstream school with support. And obviously going out through the education system, uh, people said I'm quite intelligent and bright. So I've been able to almost catch up as far as like the social skills and the English language and subjects that I don't like go while at the same time being able to excel at subjects like maths and the sciences which are much more aligned with how my brain works and operates essentially. So I continue to receive support throughout my time at school. In junior school this was eight hours a week but decreasing as my education went on and even when I was at university I was able to apply for the disabled student allowance which meant that I was able to receive additional support so I studied my degree in physics mostly the support related to not actually learning the content itself which I was capable of doing but more around like organization skills and just planning my work and things like that which I wasn't quite so good at By the way, so I finished school with good qualifications. I ended up with a good degree in physics. And for the past five years, I've been working as a data analyst, 
which actually has quite a lot in common with physics in that you need that logical approach, you need that attention to detail, and you need some of the coding skills which you get taught as part of a physics degree, and also just the approach that you take to problem solving. So you've got a problem and you need to break it down into numerous logical stages, just as you would for a scientific experiment, and then mm -hmm. putting that into play and displaying the results nice and clearly in a graph or as a talk or presentation. That's something which I feel I've always been quite good at because, I mean, some people say that being autistic is like running on a different operating system. So everyone else is running on Windows. I'm running on a Mac, let's say, and I have to explain mm -hmm. the differences. And I've had to do this to people throughout my life as a child, describing to my peers how I think differently at school and at university, giving talks on subjects, which may be confusing to some people. So one of the presentations I gave in physics to do with my dissertation was on lasers. And obviously, even in the field of physics, like lasers can get hugely complicated. So just trying to explain something in terms which people can understand is something that I've been doing for a very long time. And this is reflected not only in my job, but the fact that I've been giving talks on, on autism around the UK for the past 10 years now. Okay, just to go back into what you mentioned, is how do you think differently in comparison to what people perceive as normal? Because as we've discussed before, I don't think that the approach is that people should see people's autism as, as different or abnormal and normal people is normal. I think that, that people's autism, are they are normal for themselves. And mm. How they function is normal. We've just got to learn and find out how it is that people process information differently and just be accepting of the fact that they are not normal to you. So what is it that gives you that advantage of being able to think differently? How do you think differently when you actually start looking at a problem, when you're thinking about things and you're analyzing it? How do you present the information in a way that makes it understandable to somebody that is not used to the skills that you've got? Well, a brief summary of that would be, I like to think, I think my brain is structured in form of like spreadsheets and databases so I can quite easily access information that is already there. Obviously, mm -hmm. I've learned throughout my life that people operate on a different operating system. They have a different frame of reference. So I have learned through thousands of hours of practice, like in everyday communication, as well as more formal talks and presentations, that I need to phrase things in such a way that I have to try and almost hack the neurotypical or normal way of thinking mm -hmm. And try and explain things from my perspective in terms that other people understand. So for autistic people, for example, we are known for having an exceptional attention to detail, which means when it comes to coding, like I can pick out when there's like one comma, one bracket, one tiny little punctuation thing out of place in multiple lines of code. But neurotypical people, from my perspective, seem to be more big picture thinkers. So there's an mm -hmm. expression that relays this, like not being able to see the wood for the trees. So mm -hmm. in other words, neurotypical people, once they find a tree, they're able to appreciate the implications behind having a tree, the value of the wood in the case of this metaphor. But with autistic people, we may not be able to appreciate how much trees are worth. But on the other hand, we are very good at spotting trees in the first place. So I think in the right situations, the two different ways of thinking, if you can separate it like that,
can be very complementary. But many neurotypical simply think, well, autistic people are different. They don't think like us. And well, confirmation bias suggests that we are more likely to get on with and to appreciate people who think in similar ways that we do. Mm. Yeah. When it comes to your pattern recognition, mm. you're able to pick out very, you could say, detail-oriented things, very small differences mm. and discrepancies almost, because coding is one of those things where you have to be very, very focused on on smaller details. It can, be, it can be, you know, closing a piece of code off, putting in you know, a space where it should be you know, tabbing something, making sure that you, you know, if you're putting in comments, making sure that you're being very descriptive enough to to actually explain the whole process or to explain the coding principles and being very careful in the way that you structure it because if you make the smallest kind of mistake, one, the coding is not going to run or two, it's going to generate an error mm. and it tends to lead to frustration for, for quite a lot of people. And the other thing is, do you find that you tend to be a lot more creative because it, you're very detail oriented and you can actually access information a lot easier? Are you, easy, uh, are you able to recall information quite easy? Uh, yeah, I certainly am able to recall information that I know more quickly. I mean, certainly when it came to learning languages at school, to use another example, because of my like database spreadsheet way of thinking, when learning French, let's say, I can just think this word means that, that word means that. It's as, it's as easy as assigning a variable a value in a piece of code, whether it's a number or a string. I can just assign all those variables, assign this word means that, that means that. And the grammar is essentially the syntax, how you put it all together. So I found that learning languages is something that I was very good at while at school. But coming back to the point about creativity, we define creativity as having a novel and unique approach to something. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm just doing things the way I feel that they are best done. But other people looking at my different approach would think that I may be very creative, even though I'm just operating within the rules set out by the situation. Mm -hmm. So creativity, I feel, is something that is very subjective because you could equally argue autistic people are not very creative in the sense that we are very strict and rule abiding and may find it difficult to find ways to work around those rules because we feel that those rules should be strictly followed. Is that something that you find is very inherent in the way that you then learn as well? Because you, you're very, you could say, aware of the rules and the structure of the learning process that you, it removes a lot of, you could say, wasted effort on trying to figure out ways of doing it. You're basically just processing information at a very high level. Absolutely. I think once you've got the rules in place, it does make it a much more efficient pathway to learning. As I said, with learning languages, you learn this word means that, that word means that. You've got the grammar, which is the rules to put it in place. And it does make for a more efficient way of thinking. But it also means that autistic people can be less, well, less able to cope and to adapt when the rules change. Mm -hmm. Because we are less tolerant of change in that sense. How do you cope then with change? How do you, how do you manage that then? I think the best way to manage change for autistic people, because it's something that we often find very difficult, is firstly to have as much notice of the change as possible. Uh, secondly, to have as much detail about the change as possible, not just this is going to change, like talk about the implications of the change as well. This change will affect all of these other different areas. And then thirdly, having a plan of action as to how you're going to deal 
with the change. Certainly when I was a child, I was, well, I've always been quite a visual thinker. And as a child, we used to have like timetables and routines stuck on the fridge at home so that I knew what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. And that was, and still is, very reassuring for me so that I've got this set of rules, I've got these new guidelines if something changes, so that it's not a complete and sudden change, which can be very disorienting for autistic people. It's something that I've been doing quite a significant amount of research on to actually understand how I think, but also how to understand how the brain processes information. And one of the most common things I've uh, I've realized is that regardless of whether you get creative people and how they process information, how they think and, and, and act, in essence, the brain ha- hates ambiguity. It likes being very mm-hmm. specific. And it, the the less structure there is, the more it causes, you could say, internal stresses and it causes mm-hmm. an emotional kind of you could say emotional conflict. Yes, that's that's a good way to put it. Emotional conflict, and it causes procrastination quite often. Hmm. And this is something which I've only recently realised. The fact is that procrastination is nothing more than just a lack of structure that people don't know how they're going to take an action or, or make a decision. Hmm. And it's that lack of structure, which then puts them in a situation where they, the easiest thing that they can do by default is the brain will do nothing. It'll just say, okay, I don't know. I've got no structure for this. I don't know how I'm supposed to process it. So I'm just going to do the next best thing, which is the easiest thing is I just ignore it. Hmm. Unless there's an actual reason behind it or a stressor or some kind of emotional driver to actually keep it in your forefront and say, look, you need to act on this, you need to act on it. Mm. The brain would just say, I can't deal with it, I'll just leave it. And the more I look at it, the more I realize that that even people in general Mm. sit for the same situation. I think based on my understanding of what what you've said is that you just like to make your life a lot easier to have that information up front because it removes a lot of concern and worry and uh, conflict and stress, things which you don't like. So the the other thing I just want to find out a bit more is, do you find that your emotional response to different changing situation is a lot more acute, or do you find that you can actually cope with that? Or how do you react emotionally when you do sit with a situation where where something is slightly out of the ordinary? I think that's... Well, in a sense, uh, quite a vague question, but it's hugely dependent on the context, as has been Mm -hmm. especially evident in the pandemic that we are facing. Everybody likes to have some kind of secure base. There are some things that you know are certain and you have a level of control over a certain amount of things and you feel comfortable with that. Once you've established that comfort zone, people are comfortable then to take a couple of steps outside of their comfort zone to try new things to experiment with the changes. But Mm -hmm. obviously, if you go too far for your comfort zone, your brain just says, nope, and just wants to shut down and not have it. And obviously, with Mm -hmm. autistic people, our comfort zone may be smaller. It comes in different areas as well. So if you were to throw a new programming language at me, say to learn this, as you said, provided there's the motivation, so you don't procrastinate, that's something I'm quite easily able to do. But somebody Mm -hmm. not familiar with coding would be like, what on earth is this? I can't do this. But obviously Mm -hmm. put me in a situation where I don't have as much relevant expertise or don't feel sufficiently comfortable with, for example, going into a completely new 
social situation with a new group of people, I'd feel particularly uncomfortable with that. Even if it's a situation I've been in before, like if I don't have some kind of helper or catalyst, for example, if I don't know anyone else there and I'm just going into the deep end, metaphorically speaking, I would just not want to do it. It would be too far out of my comfort zone. But you also raised the point of like, this is the case for normal people as well. And I think it's important to draw parallels between autistic people and with everybody else. If you just understand that normal people experience these difficulties sometimes as well, then you've taken a good step towards helping to understand autistic people. From what you've mentioned, it just seems that it causes a lot more emotional turmoil for you dealing with something that's outside of your comfort zone, which means you need a lot more preparation to actually be able to cope with the situation. Yeah, absolutely. The the main difference being is that the situations which I feel more uncomfortable with and require a lot more preparation are more likely to be situations which you would be comfortable with. For example, meeting a group of people is something that's probably fine for most neotypical people that I would find quite difficult. But learning a new coding language or, let's say, fighting a new opponent in judo, that's something that my brain is much more aligned towards. I'm more comfortable with it and have more experience. So it's something I'm much more able to devote my brain power to. Whereas I don't know how long you've not been doing judo for, but if you were to fight a big, strong opponent in judo, that would be a lot more mental effort for you than it would be for me. Yeah. One, because it just comes down to familiarity and, Absolutely. and being comfortable in the situation and, and knowing how to react and how you can actually you know deal with the opponent uh, mm-hmm. and knowing how to approach it. Because at the end of the day, you're talking about a size advantage, reach advantage, and also weight difference. So these are these old factors that come into play. The other interesting thing is that you do quite a lot of talks, which you've mentioned before. So how do you go about preparing for that? Because you know, public talks and public discussions is something that you've developed as a skill. How did you build up to that? How did you decide to actually go down that route? So I feel that getting into public speaking, in a sense, links to my music. Because I come from a musical family, I play numerous musical instruments, including the piano and the bass guitar, drums and various percussion instruments. So I've been used to performing live in front of people from an early age. And it's that same confidence getting up in front of an audience that helped me to give my first talk at a local autistic trust's AGM when I was 18. And Obviously, I had to prepare a lot for that talk. It was new material, but it was in a comfortable, friendly environment because I'd known the organization for some time. Mm-hmm. And well, because it went down particularly well, I felt that I could do talks to other schools, organizations and charities. And again, when it comes to presenting in public, it's just a question of practice, practice and do some more practice. I mean, they say it takes 10,000 hours to master a skill, but I feel that the skill is very complementary to my music performing skills, which I've developed from a very young age, and I'm perfectly confident and comfortable playing to a live audience. And in a, on a similar vein, almost in parallel, I would say, I'm comfortable giving a talk on autism to a large audience because, I mean, I've been giving talks for the past 10 years now to a wide variety of different audiences, And obviously, when I introduce new material, I prepare it more thoroughly. But I always know that even in situations like that, when I'm presenting new material, it won't be long before I get back to material that I've delivered many times before and I'm very familiar with. So so long as you can see the metaphorical light at the end of the tunnel, 
you can envisage a situation in which you feel comfortable with in the near future, then you can override the times where things don't feel so great. And have you found that your background in music has given you an additional benefit when it comes to your studies and your way of thinking? I certainly think music has been complementary to my way of thinking. And obviously, as a child, it has a good influence on your brain. As in, with music, when you learn a new piece, you do have to be very patient because especially for a complex piece, it can take a few months to learn it. And you've got to be very methodical. You've got to have a real good attention to detail, making sure you're playing all of the right notes, you're playing them at the right time with the right relation to other notes and with the right rhythm. There's a lot to take into account when learning a piece of music. And I feel that same meticulous approach is something that I've used throughout my studies, throughout my job and my degree. And I feel that music and learning pieces does provide a solid foundation to a good and thorough way of learning. There's a interesting research which has come out with regards to music and the fact that learning and actually developing music skill has actually got a positive impact on math and science learning. They did a recent research in the US on school-going children and actually looked at children who actually learned a musical skill as they went along and they found that their corresponding marks in math and science was a lot better because of it. And as you've mentioned, there seems to be a crossover in actually developing the capability of learning the music, the notes, you know, how it all fits contextually with everything else allows you to develop or carry over that capability into maths and science. Because again, you've got to be a lot more patient, a lot more detailed, focused, and very methodical in your approach and actually analyzing the information, being able to get to the end result uh, of what you want to achieve. Yeah. Do you find it also helps you relax and actually change, you could say, your ability to think of, of, of a solution when it comes to something that you've been trying to figure out? Has it got any kind of different way of changing the way that you think or perceive a situation? Oh, absolutely. I would suggest that when you're focusing on a particular problem, if you go away, play some music, you could argue it's a form of mindfulness. You're just completely removing yourself from the difficult situation, all you have to worry about when you're practicing is the music. And as a good proficient musician, like you know what that entails. You can just focus on the music. Your brain doesn't worry about everything else. So I would argue that it is a form of mindfulness. I mean, even Albert Einstein was a proficient musician, yeah. very capable of playing the violin and playing the piano. And it was it's quite widely known that when he was stuck in the middle of a physics problem, he'd just go away play the violin or play the piano for a while, strike a few chords, and when he'd come back, he'd have a fresh perspective onto his problems. And I feel it's that exact way of thinking. And yeah, that certainly complements the fact that music and maths and the sciences do use very similar parts of the brain, and it does require a similar approach to both of them. That is something I found incredibly fascinating when I uh, did a lot of research into Albert Einstein is the fact that he played music. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a corresponding trend with quite a lot when you start digging into, you could say, similar people with similar or considered geniuses in that regard, mm -hmm. and that quite a lot of them actually played a musical instrument of some sort or were quite proficient in playing music. Mm -hmm. And it, there seems to be a very strong correlation being able to develop a musical skill and then using that as a way of actually 
enhancing your mental and cognitive capabilities because you're actually giving yourself a bit of a break from analyzing information and you're changing your focus uh, and the way that your your brain processes information because it's uh, you're changing or using a different part of your brain and mm -hmm. also i think Potentially, it could be that the sound and the auditory aspect of the music actually, in a way, syncs various parts of the brain to start harmonizing differently, which means that you're, you're encoding and you're recoding memories and you're actually writing memories mm. in a different way. I think that's a really interesting aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. I would also add that most people listen to music as a form of relaxation in one form or another. And I would argue that playing a musical instrument, you still get exposed to the music. You still have the relaxation of the music combined with the fact that you're working on learning a musical instrument and you're still working your brain, but as you said, in different ways, so completely different mm. to the task that you had before, but you're still working your brain, exercising it as you would a muscle. The other thing that you mentioned, which I found quite interesting, is the fact that it's a form of meditation. Mm. And one of the things about mindfulness meditation, which has been highlighted recently, is that form of meditation actually strengthens the pathways between all of the cognitive areas, mm. which help the, the brain process information in a lot better way. So it gives you a capability of being a lot more open-minded, but mm. which I think gives you access to different parts of the brain, which you would not normally access if you were not being mindful because the other thing is it also changes how the, the brain functions because it gives you a lot more ability to improve your working memory there's research which supports the fact that mindfulness meditation gives you the capability of improving your working memory and your cognitive capability because you're actually tracking what you're doing your attention to your physical responses and reaction to the breathing and the awareness enhances the brain's capability of tracking things. And I think that also happens with the music because you being aware of the music, the sound, you're relaxing, you're open-minded in the way that you're processing information, which allows you to then enhance your physical sensations and being able to feel the music and feel the differences and also get the enjoyment out of it, which means you're relaxing. And that also, again, changes how you process information. Mm. Is it something that you do? Do you meditate at all? No, I, I wouldn't say I meditate personally, but <laughs> I just think that having the separation from your work and your hobbies is a yeah just a good way to help relax your brain. And it's one of the points that they make in mindfulness is about being in the here and now, thinking about what's happening now rather than worrying about what's happened in the past or what's going to happen in the future. And because music takes up a, quite a lot of your brain capacity, you need to focus in order to make the most out of the practice or performance or whatever you happen to be doing. Because it requires that focus, you're forced to think in the here and now. So therefore, you're not worrying yeah. about a lot of other things, which because you're not worrying about them, that's, I think, part of how the relaxation comes about. Yeah. And how did you actually get into martial arts or judo? What was the, the, the reason for getting into judo? So judo, in a sense, runs in my family. So, I mean, it, my dad did judo when he was young, as did my grandpa. And it was also to get me into judo, not just because it was a family thing, but also as a form of self-defense, because autistic children are unfortunately considerably more prone to being bullied than most other children. So it was as a form of self-defense as well. And obviously, 
there's also the added byproduct of the physical fitness side of things. I mean, I would, there's no question about it. Having a good sense of physical fitness is fantastic for anybody in a mental sense yeah. as well as physical. And I feel that autistic people may not be as aware of their physical self, their coordination may not quite be as good as everybody else's. But I think that's because autistic people are less likely to think about their physical self, to practice some kind of physical activity. And that's one of the reasons why I think judo is very valuable for autistic people. It's certainly done me a lot of good. But at the same time, it can help as a form of self-defense. And well, it's mm. one of those things which... I mean, parents throw a lot of stuff at their children to try. Some of them they continue, some of them give up. And judo is just something that I've always enjoyed. I mean, unlike the education system within schools where they expect everyone to progress at a similar rate and to do well in similar subjects, with judo, you're very much able to progress at your own rate. If the instructor feels you're not ready to grade up, that's okay. There's no pressure to grade up, but you grade up as much or as little as you feel comfortable with as well as reaping the rewards of just doing judo as a martial art. Mm. And then do you find that it's also given you a lot more confidence to be able to deal with challenges outside of, you could say, a dojo? I would certainly argue that, yes. I mean, looking at it from an outsider's perspective, if I can throw a fully grown 100-kilogram man slap bang on the floor, then... Of course, there are many other things that I can achieve. <laughs> yeah. Have you found that that creative side and the martial arts side that, that came from your family also contributed to the amount of confidence that you have and giving you the skills, enhancing your skills to be able to deal with things on a day-to-day -day basis? Absolutely. Confidence is a wide-ranging thing because obviously with judo, there's the sense of confidence. Like if I can do a great throw on another person, then why shouldn't I be able to do other great things in other areas of life similar to music if i'm able to work on and perform pieces to a large audience therefore i should be able to do other things in other situations it's just a question of practicing it so that you overcome the virtual barriers in your mind that stop you from doing so it's just being comfortable enough with the situation so that when the situation calls you know that you are able to do it knowing that you've sufficiently broken down the mental barriers that used to exist it also mentions on your website that you do rock climbing how did you get involved with that well rock climbing is just something that i tried at university because in my first year i tried numerous clubs and societies because university in a sense to me was a fresh start because at school obviously people had known me from quite a young age i mean i went into senior school when i was 11 years old but obviously i underwent quite a lot of development not just going through puberty but also like developing as a person throughout my time at university so by the time I went to university I felt that that was a fresh start for me so I tried a number of other different activities and sports and rock climbing was something that intrigued me due to it's like not just the physical aspect but the problem solving side of it I mean it's more than just your physical ability but there's also quite a technical aspect to it, like being able to pinch the tiniest of holes and balancing your body in very precise ways. And I found that actually when I was at university that there were many other like physicists and engineers who did rock climbing, some of which you could argue certainly had autistic traits. <laughs>
Well, that's that's quite interesting. I certainly agree with the technical aspect. I've always been, you could say, intrigued by a lot more of the technical aspects of many of the sports as part of the reason why I decided to go into Aikido because it is very, very technical. Absolutely. And you also have to pay attention to a lot more of your sensory awareness and you have to feel the opponent in the actual training because it's not just about physical strength because Aikido tends to work on the sense and you would say responsiveness. Mm. You have to be very subtle in the way that you're applying force in the way that you're actually working with your partner. Mm. So I found that incredibly rewarding. And it was in a way quite frustrating because you're not using muscular force to actually enact a change, although there is muscular force involved. Mm. The fact that you have to be very subtle and very technical in your implementation of it because it's the actual technical implementation which actually allows you to generate force and movements and change in the other person, which I found incredibly rewarding. And then one of the key things I found is how you start determined how well the technique actually was implemented. And if you started incorrectly or poorly or you didn't pay attention to the subtlety of the start of the technique, and you didn't follow through with the movement and made sure that your positioning and your structure was correct, it massively impacted the rest of the technique and it massively impacted the delivery. And it didn't feel fluid or didn't feel that it was, you could say, sound. It, it just lacked something when when you actually did have a really good entry or a very good uh, technical implementation of it. And it also felt a lot easier when you use the technical aspects of the form correctly. That's something which has always struck me. It's one of the things I miss greatly of not practicing at the moment is the fact that technical aspect of it is vastly missing. Absolutely. I mean, you could argue exactly the same with judo in the implementation of throws. It's not just about physical strength. It's about understanding how you are performing compared to your opponent, what their actions are. And as you said, the force that you need to apply needs to be very precise and very well coordinated so that you're not using excess physical strength. Yeah. And the main thing with Aikido was that you're not attacking somebody, you're waiting for the other person to attack, which means you're then using momentum and force and direction to be able to change or affect the other person and the whole thing is about working with the other person to make sure that the that the movement flows and that it feels in control but it's subtle and that's really quite you could say eye-opening being able to see that the other thing that i i that i found quite interesting is that women tended to be a lot more technically capable and they were a lot better at the form because they didn't have the same physical strengths to be able to use that mm. to manipulate the situation so they had to rely on the technical aspects of it and i found their technical implementation of it tended to be so much better than what the men were yeah i mean it's fair i mean it's fair to say that's a generalization but obviously as you said women generally don't rely on strength as much whether it's because they're less physically able or that's just because those are the values that society implements within women but it's absolutely the same with judo as it is aikido like you need to have the technical implementation as well it's not just going it by brute force but you could certainly say with judo that you are more able to get away with it with brute force but certainly with older people that do judo like you need to have the technical implementation otherwise you'll end up getting a bad back and you'll end up getting sore 
It's something that I that I enjoy and that I miss. Getting on to some of the other extracurricular activities, your videos that you got on your website are showing you playing quite a wide variety of instruments. You've got the spoon, you've got piano. What else do you play? So yeah, the main instruments I play, uh, piano, a bit of drums, bass guitar, and yeah, various other percussion instruments, but including the spoons. It's actually got an interesting story as to how I learned how to play the spoons. So this is about 10 years ago now where my parents took me to see a reunion of the Bonzo Dog Doodah band, quite an obscure band that was somewhat famous in the 60s. And so they did their gig as well as their usual gags. And at one point they had their drummer, a guy called Sam Spoons, come out on stage and do a live performance of playing the Spoons, which, as you'd imagine, was absolutely fantastic. So he had the idea, because obviously I've been a competent musician for some time now to contact the band to say i've been playing piano for nearly 10 years now i'm a good musician could you please teach me how to play the spoons and a few weeks later they actually gave us a call back saying like this is sam spoons i'd be delighted to give you a lesson because i wouldn't want the art of spoons playing to die out so we organized for me to go over to where he was living just outside of London with a collection of various different pairs of spoons, as you do. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then after an hour, hour and a half or so, yeah, he had taught me how to play the spoons, even though admittedly sometimes instead of focusing on his technique, I was just like, oh my God, there's Sam Spoon playing the spoons. It's like having your favorite guitarist giving you a guitar lesson and they just get a bit carried away. You can't help but think, wow, this is just amazing that they're performing right in front of me. So yeah, I learned the te- how to play the spoons. And after about a week of practicing, yeah, I got the knack of it. And I've been performing live, playing the spoons ever since. And it's still such a novelty to many people, which sometimes my dad finds quite frustrating because I play in a family band called the Sticklebacks and he's been playing guitar for over 40 years now and it's quite annoying for him that the biggest applause often comes from me playing the spoons which took me a week to learn (laughs) oh that's brilliant that is just fantastic it's Sometimes the smaller things that uh, they, they get the most attention, eh? Absolutely. Brilliant. One of the things that you mentioned in your site is that you also uh, have got a big love for Monty Python. How <laughs> yes. that, uh, is that also the you know, introduction by your father? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, like my dad always wanted to implement a good sense of humor into me because obviously when my parents first found out that I was different, that I was autistic, they knew nothing about autism. And so my dad wanted to implement a good sense of humour into me, which did involve watching quite a lot of comedies, including Monty Python. And I mean, even 50 years on, it's still like the pinnacle of British comedy. And it is just exactly the kind of thing that I find hilarious. How have you found found that humour has been able to give you a different perspective? Is it something that you just naturally enjoyed watching the Monty Python things? And have you found that the focus on the, the humour side has given you a different perspective on things? That is an interesting way to look at it. I've not actually been asked that question before. But yeah, you could certainly say humour gives you a different view of things because obviously humor laughing helps to release endorphins which makes you feel good mm. and i like to implement a sense of humor a bit of lightheartedness into my talks because obviously for some people autism is a very serious topic as to how it affects people yeah. but at the same time i do like to bring in cases a light-hearted approach as to the ridiculous of the world around us which makes you think like 
being autistic, thinking of things differently is okay. Like maybe the world around us is a bit ridiculous and being autistic is not all as bad as I thought it would be. I think it's a good approach to have. And the response that you get as a public speaker and talking about autism, how have you found that uh, one benefited you and how has that education been carried over to other people? How have they perceived it? How have things changed? What do you, What have you found out about that? The main thing I want to get across to people when doing my talks is to give them a different view on autism, to challenge their existing views and preconceptions, and to just deliver my message, mostly focusing on the positive aspects of autism, which I feel are overlooked, but also just Mm -hmm. filling out a general level of knowledge that I believe everybody should have around autism, and just delivering that from myself as an autistic person, which I think gives it that much more clout. Because it's one thing Mm -hmm. a professional that's been working in the autism field for 30 years, Monday to Friday, nine till five. That is very different to the approach I give, which is I've been living with autism 24 hours a day for 28 years of my life and counting. Yeah. And to look at the first point that you made about how it's affected me. I mean, it's not only given me a platform to showcase what it's like to be autistic from my perspective and to give other people a different view on autism but it's also helped me to develop my valuable public speaking skills to earn a bit of extra money and also certainly when it came to getting my first job at Dennis Publishing which was just over five years ago now the hiring department when they hired me said one of the main things that attracted them to my CV and me was the fact that I had my website so it has those oh, other well. added little benefits as well. And the public speaking, obviously, is really a, a very valuable skill. And there's, uh, you know, a lot of people actually struggle with public speaking because it puts them in a very exposed space. And a lot of people are not very comfortable being able to stand up and actually talk because you obviously get all of the other connotations go with that as mm-hmm. you know, people think that they're imposter or they're not good enough or they can't talk or they don't really know how to. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've realized over the years is that it's about skill development and mm-hmm. more that you expose yourself in that way and actually work at it as a skill and, and allow yourself to develop that and give yourself the permission to actually do that. The more you actually find ways of actually enjoying it and actually then some of the other aspects of the message comes across and it's got a lot more meaning and it's got a lot more impact on what people think. Being able to do public speaking is incredibly valuable because it gives you an opportunity to share information with other people, which is really important. And especially if it's a really important message like what you've got, I think it's a, it's a fantastic. It's one of, I think, the most underrated skills that people can develop. I think it's something that, that they should try and do as much as possible to help them make make them feel comfortable and it also comes down to confidence and it's got huge other benefits because it also means that it's easier to actually then talk with other people in a social situation because you're not feeling as vulnerable because you have the ability of standing up in front of other people. Hmm. I'd also like to add to that that one of the reasons I feel some people have a fear of public speaking is just the fear of uncertainty. People don't like it when you don't know what could happen, what's going to happen, what might happen. People really do not like that. Neurotypical, autistic or otherwise, that's just a part of being human. So, when, yeah. And I think my music, my music practice and performance was conducive to learning to be in front of an audience and perform. And obviously, having given talks for some time now, I'm 
well prepared for almost any question that people ask me. It's not just standing up on stage and delivering a script of what I'm saying, but I feel, like other people feel as well, what they get most out of the talks that I give are the questions and answers afterwards, which not only allows me to expand a bit on the points that I make, but it also gives people just that much more of an insight into what it's like to be autistic. And it may seem a bit strange to have an autistic person who, traditionally speaking, doesn't have very good social skills, giving a public talk, which some people would argue requires excellent social skills. But I feel that it's just the question of practice and trying Mm. to understand about it as much as possible to overcome that fear of uncertainty. I think it's a very valid point that you made over there. So what's the core thing that you would like to share with people from an autistic person's background? What, what advice would you, number one, give to parents who are autistic or, you know, have to deal with that with somebody in their family? And how would you advise them to go about, you know, assisting and helping to develop their child, their, their brother, their sister or whatever, to become more confident and more, you could say, happier in, in the fact that they've got a constraint, but it doesn't mean that they're ineffective. I think that's a big thing is people see somebody who's autistic as being ineffective and has got no value. And that's, that is massively incorrect because there's an enormous amount of value that they can provide. And you know, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of capability that people have. So what advice would you have for people? The main advice I would have is to be open-minded, to essentially to press the reset button in the sense that reset your preconceived notions and judgment, reset your expectations, and just try your best to understand the individual, whether it be a child, an adult, your friend, whoever it may be. Just try to understand things from their perspective. Try to understand them as a human being. If you try to impose your preconceived notions like, will my child grow up? Will they become a successful adult? Will they get married? Will they have children? If you're trying to think about these questions on a nonverbal three-year-old autistic child, you need to change your focus. These things may come in the future, but that's something to think about far in the future. It's not just thinking Mm -hmm. about in the here and now. Try to understand the person as well as you possibly can from their perspective. Right. They may not be great in certain areas. Well, that's okay. Everybody has their weaknesses. Yeah, you, yeah. Need, you need to appreciate the person for who they are, understand their strengths and work with them to maximize them, but understand what that person may not be so good at as well to try to help them improve on their weaknesses so that they can fit into a more neurotypical world. I mean, there's a saying, which is supposedly by Albert Einstein, but in the world of fake news, I'm not so sure. The saying that if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its entire life thinking that it's an idiot. Yeah, it's very true. So I think the message that you've basically given is more or less what every person actually goes through on any given day. Mm. And I, I think it's valuable advice that anybody can give to their child or their family members is having empathy and being open to creative ways that you can actually build a relationship with them and actually find out what their strengths are and use that to to develop it even further. 100%. I mean, they say that autistic people lack empathy, but there have been so many countless examples of neurotypical people lacking empathy towards autistic people. So that seems rather mm, ironic. Yeah, it definitely is. Michael, I thoroughly appreciate the the time that you took for the interview. I really enjoyed it. It was a really fantastic interview. 
how can people get a hold of you if they want to invite you for a talk or if they want you to play the spoons at their <laughs> their events? Well, I would certainly welcome any request for a talk, a conversation, or to play the spoons or give a music performance or anything. You can find me on my website at michaelbarton.org.uk and you can find me on either Twitter or LinkedIn with the handle michaelbarton22. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time and have a fantastic day. Well, thank you for having me, Lance, and you too. Have a great day. Yes. Thanks, bye. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast. 